You're listening to Retro Sermons, timeless lessons from the Bible spoken by voices of the past. You can blame Brother Tally for this class. This was his idea. I'm not saying that that it all detracts from it. I think that it's a good idea, and I'm glad to see you young people here uh, to think about this with me. And I don't want to make it entirely just a matter of my talking. There are some things about the subject that I'm sure I'll have to tell you that you've not thought about. There are some things that you can think about for yourself uh, in with it. First of all, before we go into a discussion of the things you see on the chart, which I hope to make clearer than they may be now, uh, don't look at the sheet and tell me, somebody, what we mean by evolution. Can anybody do that without reading it off the sheet? Have you never heard the word in school? What does it, just basically, what does it mean for something to evolve? These little boys, all right, Johnny. That's revolve. Tommy? Change slightly from generation to generation. That's the basic idea of, of uh, the word evolution. That is, it means to change. And what we're talking about actually in our thought on evolution as it's taught carries it a great deal further than that. Uh, and it literally is involved in the statement that I have here written in black. That is, that evolution is the theory that millions of years ago lifeless matter acted upon by natural forces gave origin to one or more minute or that's very small living organisms which have since evolved or changed into all living and extinct plants and animals including man in other words that from the beginning of life which they say was just one cell everything that now lives came through a process of development uh, step by step from the lower to the higher that we now have what we can see in the world of living things. That's the idea that men have about the origin of life. They think that it started from one small animal or one small cell that, of course, would be an animal in itself and then came to be what we have now. Let me read to you a book, or at least a little bit from a book, that I got from Betty this afternoon that she was supposed to teach in elementary grades. And this is what you fourth and fifth and sixth graders are supposed to be learning and what the teachers are supposed to be telling them now. Uh, the book says the origin of life is the mystery of mysteries. Down through the ages, philosophers and scientists have sought an answer to the question, how did life begin? In those distant archaeozoic times when the seas and the atmosphere seethed with chemical turbulence, it is possible. Now notice how the shift goes from the theoretical to the practical. It says it is possible that molecules join together to form specks of living protoplasm, the starting points of all life. In other words, out in the ocean, circumstances being just right, then these first cells were formed. He says the first organisms would probably have been hard to classify as either plants or animals. As time went on, modified descendants of these first organisms developed. Now, you see, he doesn't talk about possibilities anymore, but he says that these things developed, doesn't leave a doubt, just states that it was so, developed in two different directions to form the basis for the plant and animal kingdom. The first plants were the bacteria and the algae. And I know some of you who've been studying in the ninth and 10th grades can already say that you've learned a little bit about the algae and some of these smaller organisms that are classified as being at the very bottom of the scale of evolution. We're talking about a, a radical development of living organisms from the lower to the higher when we think about evolution. Now, there are two different aspects of this that you'll run into when you are taught or people try to get across this idea to you. One of them is what they call atheistic evolution. And atheistic evolution embodies within it the idea that there is no such thing as God, that everything that we see now is a result of just the happenstance of circumstances that bring matter together. Of course, they don't tell us where matter came from, but it comes together in the first great mass of matter formed the world in which we live. And then after this, then things have just through a process of time developed until the first one cell springs from it, all without any direction from any higher power. That's atheistic evolution. Uh, all the people over in Russia who have the religion of the state believe that. That is, they believe in atheistic evolution. They don't believe in God. And they believe that everything that now exists came into being without God. There is another type of evolution that is called theistic evolution. And this form of the idea 
uh, is held by those who believe in God. But their only idea about God is that God simply is an impersonal force who first of all set the world where it is, gave us the fundamental basic elements from which all things come and then withdrew from the picture and let all things evolve to where they are. In other words, uh, they say it would even be possible that maybe God put the first one-celled animal here. And from that time forward, he just let things go. He no longer has any concern about the world. That's theistic evolution. And a lot of people who claim to believe the Bible will teach this. There are some men who believe that evolution harmonizes with the Bible. But I'm going to show you before we even take up these things around the edge of the chart that that's not so. That is that you can't believe the Bible and believe in evolution too. You either accept God's teaching in Genesis 1 about creation and reject evolution, or you accept the theory of this evolving of the lower to the higher class of living things, and you'll have to reject the Bible. There's one thing for you to remember. Whenever your teacher comes to you and he reads you books like this, that says these things developed, and such and such an animal is so far along the scale of evolution, you remember that he can't say definitely that that's so. Now, he may make you believe that that's a fact. He may make it seem so plausible to you that there's no room for you to doubt it. In fact, when I was in school studying biology in college just two years ago, uh, my teacher was a theistic evolutionist. That is, he believed in God, but he didn't believe that God had anything to do with where we are. He just thought that God started things off like you wind up a clock, and now he's letting things go like they are by themselves. And uh, when we began to discuss the question of the origin of life, I raised some questions to him, and he could immediately see that I believed in the Bible, I believed that God created uh, men and that God created animals. And he made a statement now, he says... Uh, now, Mr. Blue, he said, we can't actually see the changes occurring. They occur too slow. It takes millions of years for this to happen. Well, I'd say, now, how do you know that that's so? If we never have seen it, and if you depend on a doctrine where you have to see things demonstrated for us to be able to say they're actually so, how do you know that evolution is true? He says, why, any sensible person will accept what I'm telling you. In other words, the implication is, if I don't believe what he said, I don't have any sense. And that's just about the choice you've got in school. They'll infer that you don't have any sense if you don't believe in evolution. But remember all the way through that, no matter how much they might seem that this has all been proven, that it's still a theory and not a fact. Uh, can any of you tell me what a theory is as opposed to a fact? Don't let these little kids answer all the questions. Some of you big folks tell me. All right. A scientific guess. In other words, it's an idea that somebody has that has not yet been demonstrated. Actually, this is a useful tool of science. Well, okay. It's a, it's the formation of an idea in a scientific mind, seeking to arrive at a definite, proven conclusion, okay? <laughs> uh, a lot of the facts we now have began with theories. Uh, and we, we start off with the idea, now, if this is so, then something must have happened. And they theorize on different choices that we have to make, and they eventually, by a process of demonstration, can come up and choose between the theories and arrive at a fact. It ceases being a theory. It's That's easy. right. This word yes is correct now. Okay? Because it's a prediction or it's uh, the word that could be for that on the basis of some information. But it, you're just saying that the idea of science and guessing don't go together. That is, if you have true science, that it's something you know. And that is valid. That is, that is so. That anything that is true science, of course, fits in with the Bible. Uh, but this thing that we're talking about is not scientific in that it has not been demonstrated. It has not been proven. It still occupies the theoretical realm. It's all, it's all guesswork. And I'll show you just how much of it's guesswork, I hope, before we get through. Now, it's not a new theory. I think that one of the things that made me uh, entertain the idea that it might be so, so long when I was growing up was that it seemed like now everything else is developing with us. We're learning so much in other fields. And we've come up with so many new ideas that we've proven to be true that uh, in our own age, why couldn't we see now things that we couldn't see before? And people come up and act like, well, now this is something we've learned in the last hundred years or last two hundred years. But that's not true about evolution. Uh, if you were to study the people who are involved in teaching evolution, you'd be faced with the fact that you can go all the way back to 700 B.C. 
And you have men who are recognized as philosophers without peer in their age who contended the very same thing that Darwin taught, who are teaching the very same things that I read in the book. That is, that man evolved from a lower form of life. And it's not a new theory at all, so don't let folks fool you into believing that we've learned something the last 200 years that we didn't know before. Now, we might have more useful tools by which to uh, get closer with our guesses than we did before. That is, we can go down and we can dig into the rocks and we can see things with more clarity. We can uh, use uh, different uh, chemicals to be able to bring out the formation of the fossils better, stuff like that. But so far as the idea of this theory being new, it's 3,000 years old by proof and probably is just about as old as man is. That is, that men would guess and have this idea. The reason that it's old is because men have always tried to discredit God. And what we have here is an alternative to creation. That is, evolution is man's idea to come up with something that will do away with a supernatural being. We have here the thought that uh, either I must accept God and what he says about the origin of man, or I can believe the theory of evolution and rule God out of the picture. There are just a lot of folks that don't want to have God and have ruled him out. Now, I'm going to read to you a statement here with reference to one man who has done so much to further the idea of evolution and how he felt about God. This is the writing of the, one of the letters of Charles Darwin, who says that another source of conviction in the existence of God, connected with the reason and not with the feelings, impresses me as having much more weight. This follows from the extreme difficulty of conceiving this immense and wonderful universe, including man with his capacity of looking backward and futureward, as the result of blind chance or necessity. When I reflect thus, I feel compelled to look to a first cause, having an intelligent mind in some degree analogous to that of man, and I deserve to be called a theist. In other words, I believe in a God. This conclusion was strong in my mind about the time, so far as I remember, that I wrote The Origin of Species. But then arises the doubt, can the mind of man, which has, as I fully believe, been developed from a mind as low as that possessed by the lowest animals, be trusted when it draws such grand conclusions? And there are other letters that we could read from him which show that he had doubts about God. In other words, he doubts God's existence, and it's easy for him to believe evolution. It's the alternative to the thought of having a creative God who put these things in order. And it's an alternative to creation that we're th talking about that actually requires more faith than believing in God. If you can ever recognize the existence of God, everything else that we have taught in the Bible is easy to believe. Uh, if we have a being that has the power that God professes to have, we can accept the fact that this being possesses omnipotence, is able to do the things that are set forth, and certainly these are not impossible things, they came into being one way or the other, then it's easy for us to believe in creation. But you've got to swallow a lot of mess if you believe in evolution. Scientists just look the other way on so many different fields of thought in order to come to the conclusion that this is something that can be believed and uh, must not be rejected. Now, I want to point out two or three things in which evolution and the Bible conflict. First of all, evolution teaches that man began in a lower form of life and he's evolving to the higher, while the Bible teaches that man began at the top and is going down. In other words, when you read of the creation of man, you read of a being that God created in his own image, after his likeness. And described here is the thought, and I believe implied in what he said, is that man, both in intellect and in physique, was perfect. That he was created with a perfect body, that he was created with a mind free from sin and turned toward God. Now, when man sinned, I believe he distorted the image of God. And the reason I say that is over in the New Testament, in Colossians 3 and verse 10. That we're taught here that we're renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. In other words, that as we become Christians and develop our spiritual life, we get back to where we were when God created us. We are restoring the image of God that we lost when we sinned. Now, that's God's arrangement. There's another reason why I say this. Remember how old that Adam lived and Methuselah lived and men like this? They were actually comparatively close to the time of creation. Their bodies and the bodies of men generally did not have time to have taken into themselves all of the decaying characteristics of disease and sin. And for this reason, they were able to exist longer. But as men get farther and farther away from God, as disease creeps over the earth more and more, then, of course, man's lifetime is shortened. And now we have a fixed time. This, too, is in the Bible, where man's span of life is judged to be, on the average, about three score and ten. But it used to be that men lived almost a whole millennium, thousand, a thousand years. 
Methuselah lived 969 years. That was back at the start. You see, when God first made man. Now, creation will tell you that we're still developing, or evolution will. That we started off with the one cell, and man, of course, didn't have a mind. Didn't have any way to think. And now we're up to where we're on this level, and we're going to be even better in the years to come. So it just directly contradicts the Genesis record. That is where God starts off with a man at the top and he's now digressing, uh, regressing and going backward. Evolution starts with him on the bottom and gets him on the way up. And so there's that contradiction about uh, evolution in the Bible. There's another, and I mentioned it already in my, uh, some of the lessons that I've taught in the meeting, that would show us that the Bible and evolution does not harmonize. Can any of you remember a passage that we mentioned from Genesis 1 that shows that evolution cannot be true? All right, teacher. All right, in Genesis 1, verse 11, in Genesis 1 and verse 24, uh, when God created the plants and when God created the animals, he said that each of them was to bring forth after his own kind. Now, evolution demands that somewhere along the way that that which produces will produce something that's not like itself. In some small degree, there has to be a change and if this is true, then what God said is not true. You have to choose between Genesis 1 and this theory of evolution. Either God is right and things bring forth after their kind, or else man is right and things are developed by blind chance and things bring forth uh, creatures, creations other than themselves. Now let me start off by saying this about our chart. Uh, you don't have anything to worry about if you take everything that has been proven by anybody that has demonstrated that it's so, you can talk to your teacher and everything that he can show you as a fact can be explained in the light of what the Bible has to say. Uh, for example, we don't know how old the earth is. It used to be that our preachers would stand up and tell you it's just 6,000 years old and try to make that stick, but you can't prove that. You can't prove that by the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that we just have 6,000 years that the earth has existed. And so that's one idea you need to dispel. Don't believe that because the Bible doesn't say it. You don't have to believe that to believe the Bible. And you can understand some of the things better that have been proven with respect to man's origin and existence if you'll be able to understand that the earth is more than 6,000 years old. Some of the things that we've been taught need to be avoided. And there's another thing that I believe that most of us have in mind that we do not find actually taught in the Bible. I don't believe that the animals that God put into the ark corresponded exactly with the number of animals that we have now. And you have only to recognize, for example, in the case of the cow, uh, the different kinds of cattle that we have all came from the same parent stock. In other words, there were cattle. Uh, maybe there was just one kind of cattle to start with. And this kind of cattle Noah put in the ark. Since that time, there have been other kinds that have come from this particular kind of cattle. Now, this is not damaging to our understanding of God because there's another thing we need to recognize, and that is that within the realm of kind, you see in Genesis 1 it says things will bring forth after their own kind. Within the realm of kind, that changes do occur. That is, there are different kinds of cattle that have come from the one basic stock, but you can understand this too. You can take your good old white-faced cows that you've worked on for 50 or 60 years to get them that way, and you can turn them back out in the pasture with scrub stock cattle, and they'll revert back to the original stock. That is, the inner breeding of cattle, bringing them together, will keep the line straight on down the way. And no matter how far you go out in trying to breed them into a specific kind of cattle, they'll never be anything else. You may be able to breed your cattle where you won't have horns on them. You may be able to breed them where all of them are black or white, or black and white. But when you get through with all the changes you can make, they still are just cattle. You see, everything still brings forth after its kind. And we're not required to believe that Noah put in the ark every different species of animal that we know. But the basic kinds were all there. And within the realm of kind, changes do occur. Let me just cite to you an example of how science has failed to prove that it's otherwise. There is a little fly called the fruit fly that has a life cycle of 21 days. And since his life cycle is so short, and since he's so small and easily bred, scientists decided that what they were going to do is just take this fruit fly and use his generations one after the other to see if they couldn't make an evolution take place. In other words, see if they couldn't bring out something besides a fly. Well, they began to breed, and the first thing you know, they've got flies that don't have any wings. They've got flies whose uh, upper part is twice as big as their lower part. 
They've got flies that don't have a pair of legs. And they can breed these flies and they'll breed truth. But the thing that always has eluded them is that when they get through that they still have a fruit fly. And when they breed this fruit fly with an ordinary fruit fly, he still goes back to the same kind of fruit fly that they started with in the first place. You see, they've bred through hundreds of generations by using the life cycle of 21 days and breeding them just as quickly as they can. And when they found out that you could use radioactive particles to speed this up about 10 times and they can get 10 generations at once. And when they do this and they do all the working they can do, after they've done everything they can, they've just got a fruit fly. Now, you don't hear about that when you talk about evolution. That's the things they don't tell you about. But when they try to demonstrate the theory that they've gotten, that's the way they always wind up. They still cannot demonstrate that there has been an evolution from one kind to another. There are some ideas that they have that I'll refer to as we go through. Now, is there any question before we start this? And I'm not going to make it last as long as you might think I will. Does anybody want to ask anything about the idea as a whole? Well, now, you know there's one thing that you're always talking about when you talk about evolution, and that's the missing link, isn't it? Everybody talks about how much they've been looking for the missing link, and they have. They've been looking for a link that's missing between what used to be thought of as apes and men. In other words, they say there ought to be an intermediate creature that's more man-like than ape and more ape-like than man. And you'll have several different men that have been found, or at least the remains of them, that they try to classify as being of this intermediate category. They, it, it's, it's got more intelligence, it's got a bigger brain cavity than an ape has, but it's not nearly so big as to justify calling it a human. And they want to have these things because they need that missing link. You see, evolution demands that there was a step-by-step process. But when you get right down to it, evolution is the thing that's got the missing links. It's not this idea of the development of man. Evolution is just full of links that are missing to tie it together to make it a demonstrable science. There are so many things that need to be proven that cannot be proven. And evolution itself is based upon the master link of assumption. That is, at every vital point they've had to assume something in order to make their theory stand up. There's no way in the world they can prove it, so they just start off by saying, now, that must have been the way that it happened. And doing this, of course, without anybody to challenge what they're saying, then they can dupe people into believing that they do have something to prove. Uh, For example, here's a quotation of a man who's discussing evolution. He's trying to prove to you that he knows what he's talking about. And this man is discussing the book that another man has written about evolution, and he's showing why he doesn't believe that it's so. He says of this author, now he asks, for example, what were the mental gifts that gave ape men evolutionary ascendancy in the world of living things? In other words, how is it that ape creatures have the capacity to exist on a superior level from other animals? And now here is his answer. He answers quite simply why the same qualities of leadership as characterized such modern human leaders as Churchill. Doesn't tell you how he knows that. He just makes a statement, you see. He assumes that that must have been so. What he asks is the mechanism which underlies the evolution of the specific characters of the human body. And he's got an answer for you. He says it's change in the system of hormones. But now, that's just what he says, you see. He guesses that. Why well, he said there must have been some hormone change. But there's no proof of it. It's never been demonstrated. It's simply an assumption. And he goes through the entire uh, realm of how these things happen. And at every point, he's just got to say, well, now, I reckon that must have happened that way, but I guess it was. But now let's think about the different things that they used to try to prove that evolution is so. And let's see how they assume at every point in the process. And I'm going to have to say some things here, I guess, that you won't know to start with, or you may not have been taught. But I'll try to make them so you can understand them. There is a theory, or there is a part to this theory that is called comparative anatomy. Now, you know what anatomy is, don't you? Anatomy is simply the idea of a person's physical makeup. My arms and my legs and my body, all this is my anatomy. And what we're talking about when we talk about comparative anatomy is that scientists take the different animals that exist, like a bird and a whale and a human being, and they compare different parts of their body. And the idea is that because we can find similarities in a person's body with the body of a whale and with the body of a bird, then these things ought to all have been a process of development one from the other. In other words, you've got an arm. The whale has a flipper, and the bird has a wing. You see, it's comparative. And because this is so, then you must have started with the bird, and the bird got the whale, and the whale got the man, you see. They're all just a development because their anatomy looks alike. And so they claim that this is so. Well, we go back to our master link of assumption. They have no missing link. In other words, there's nothing that bridges the gap between the whale and the bird, or the bird and the man. These things exist by themselves. 
And there is an alternative to the idea they put forth. Now, if you'll think with me real hard, you might come up with it without me telling you. Think about another explanation for that. That will fit the Bible. That is another reason why we can see a bird having a flip, a whale, a wing, and a whale having a flipper, and a man having an arm. These things are similar. But what other reason could you think of as uh, su suggesting why they might be similar? Usefulness. In other words, they need the flipper and the wing and the arm. Well, that's uh, reasonable, all right. I don't believe it's near as reasonable as the one I've got in my mind. All right, that's the same thing. That is, the, de the designer of the, all three creatures recognized the need for it. But there's another thing that I think is more significant than that. You ever stop to think that the same being made all three of them? Could have, couldn't he? And the same being that made all three of them just might have this as his basic design. You know, when you make a house, and when a man draws a house, you can usually tell which architect drew it because he's got a basic design that he works from. And his basic design is the thing on which he builds. Now, he may put more rooms on one wing than he does the other, but you can kind of see his shape. Even when I draw my charts, I work from a basic design. And I've demonstrated about three different basic designs during the course of my uh, preaching here. But if you just stopped and saw the bare outline of it, you could see, well, now, why well, he's using the same design every time. You see, he's got the same basic idea. Well, now, why couldn't God have that when he made the whale? And he put these flippers on the side of the whale because, as you say, they're utilitarian, and he just felt like this is the best way to do it. And along comes the bird, and he's got a wing, and he put it right there because that's the best way to do it. You're I'm saying this is just as reasonable if you want an explanation for it. Uh, you don't have to believe that it, because a bird has a wing and a whale has a flipper, that one produced the other. You can just as easily believe that they came from the same mind, you see, that God created both of them. And if my teacher taught me what those teachers teach you, that's what I'd tell him back. I'd tell him why the same God made both of them. And you'd know that God would use that same basic design. If it'd work in one, it'd work in the other. And so when they begin to compare anatomy, now that's all a guess on their point, you see. They don't have any proof of it. Now they can show you the bird, and they can show you the whale, and they can show you the man, but they can't show you that missing link. They have gaps in the process of comparing anatomies. And when they get to the gap, you just tell them that's where God comes in, you see. He did all of it. And it's just as reasonable, has just as much sense to it as what they're trying to tell you. It takes less faith to believe that if you believe in God to start with than it does to believe all the messages involved in evolution. So we suggest the idea of comparative anatomy. That is, taking the part of a body of a man or some other creature and trying to make it look like that which has evolved from another part. You just remember they've never been able to establish all the gaps in the process they need to prove that what they say is right. Any question about that? All right, then we're going to talk about this next one, which is called <coughs> embryonic recapitulation. Uh, that's a big title. And it involves a study of unborn organisms. That is, between the time that organisms are conceived, for example, while the chicken is still in the egg, after he begins to grow in that egg, he goes through a period of changes. Uh, he starts off looking like a little worm. And it gets a little bit more complicated, and through a process of a period of, I don't know how long it takes him, four weeks or so, to grow from uh, the time when the egg was laid until the chicken comes forth, that they have grown till he comes forth a chicken that's got feathers on it. Well, during this time when he's an embryo, before it's actually hatched out, there are changes that take place. And the theory of evolution says, or used to say, and they found out that many of them now, if, if your teacher teaches you this, he's, he's behind. Because most of them have realized that they can't be proven. And they've, most of them even rejected this as being actually as involved as they used to claim it was. But they say that what the embryo does while he's developing, whether it be a human unborn child as he grows within the mother, or whether it be a human a chicken as it grows within the egg, that this embryo is actually reproducing the tree of evolution. In other words, that its first form is that of the one-celled animal because it starts off as one cell. Well, this is what they say. And then as the embryo grows, it begins to develop just like the family tree of evolution started. It'll start off looking like the worm. Well, that's low down the evolutionary scale, you see. And then it'll get on to where it's got arms and legs. That's the way the reptiles came forth from these worms and creatures that didn't have legs. And it'll finally get to the point where it's more complicated and eventually come on up to where it would resemble the embryo of man. 
And so they have what they call the theory of embryonic recapitulation. Uh, that is that the species, that each individual embryo is tracing backward the tree of evolution and showing us what's involved in all the steps in the process. Well, uh, there's a lot that's missing here. In the first place, everything that they've tried to say about it is based upon a casual observation, superficial examination of these embryos. Scientists have proven to us that if we actually were to take any embryo and study it very carefully, that it exhibits qualities that are all its own, that cannot be said to be true of any other. Now, you may not be able to see when that egg first begins to develop into a chicken, anything more than a single cell that brings about the change. But that one cell, even though it's just one, has within it every faculty of the complete chicken. It's all there in that one cell before it ever starts. And it's not like anything else. And they'll tell you that so far as the human being is concerned, that it always can be determined to be a human embryo and never could you mistake it for a worm or for a reptile or for a bird or for a mammal lower than a man, that it always can be determined to be a human embryo. And by the way, let me say this, that uh, your teachers will tell you that scientists generally will uphold all these ideas. That's just not so. Uh, it's, it's like this, like it is in politics, and like it is in religion. The people that hold to a school of thought are going to try to suppress the opposing view. And they'll try to make you think that only a few extremists hold the other view, just like they do, you know, uh, you having this here in this congregation. The people uptown are trying to tell the world in general this is a bunch of uh, radical folks out here that just don't know much of anything. And they'll never tell you that there are people here that have studied the scriptures and that know the truth, that are willing to stand on the word of God. They want it to look just as bad as they can. Well, the evolutionist uh, is just the same way. The scientists try to tell you that nobody that knows anything is going to oppose what they think. But I have quotations, and I don't have them here. I didn't even bring up the material I need to give to you, of scientists from all over the world that have just as high scholastic standing and just as much respect in scientific circles that'll deny this stuff as ever would come across and say, well, I believe that that's so. For example, we've got one of the professors up at the University of Illinois, noted for its scientific department. And by the way, that's one of the few places in the country well, you'll find that the head of the scientific department doesn't believe in evolution. Most of them will not hire a man unless he does. But that's one that at least up until very recently, and I don't know how it is in the last two or three years, didn't have a man that would believe in it. Here's Professor Shumway who lived and taught there, who says there is never a time in the development of a mammal, like man, which is a mammal, when it could be mistaken for a fish or for a reptile. And yet, you see, if this is true, there had to be that time when it goes through that developing stage when it could be, and you'd think that's what it was. So this is something that cannot be proven. It's just an assumption that we could recognize that uh, men cannot establish and set forth as being right. Now, I'll use one quality here to de uh, demonstrate this before I go on to the next point. You know, fishes have gills. And whether you know it or not, before you were born, while you were still forming, that there was a time in your development that there were little slits along the side of the embryo that became you that appeared from the surface to look like the gills of the fish. This is one of the things that caused scientists to tell you that that's what the embryo does, that it, it reproduces the uh, evolutionary scale ascending. And yet when you begin to study this which is characteristic of the human embryo, uh, the only thing you can say that is like the gills of the fish is they appear in approximately the same part of the body because the function is entirely different. There never was a time when these slits in the side of the human embryo that they've called gill slits or uh, gill apparatus could ever have been used to breathe with. And when the embryo finally develops into the child, why they don't even have the same function at all, or not even in the same part of the complete uh, adult body as they would be in the adult body of the fish. It's just because they didn't look far enough. They didn't think closely enough about such things that they believed them. That's what we call embryonic recapitulation, or what they do anyway, and that's why it's just not so, because they've not looked closely enough into it to be able to establish. Now, scientists that believe in evolution don't all believe in that. Some of them have come to the conclusion they can't prove it that way, so they prove it other ways. But that's your missing link. They have casually observed it, and therefore they make that claim. But there's another reason that they claim that they ought to believe in evolution. It's based upon the geological records. Now, I know you've studied something about rocks, and you understand that men uh, use the history that they can find that is left in rocks. Uh, they can dig up things that happened a long time ago. 
Some of this is good. One reason why I believe the Bible is because of the record of the rocks. You can read in the rocks how, for example, that the flood came. It's been proven by digging into the ground. You can read into the rocks some of the things that the people in Abraham's day did because it's there, the message is there. And they go to the rocks and they feel like they can find there a message that reveals the truth of the theory of evolution because they can find fossils that no longer uh, have their counterpart in living animals. And because they think this is so, they feel like now these extinct species demonstrate evolution. And yet there are several things we need to observe. In the first place, with all of the fossils that they've been able to uncover, and over in California they're able to uncover them by the millions. You know, not all animals are as big as the animals that we can see. In fact, I know that if you've been to school as far as the 10th or 11th grade, they've told you that you can take a drop of water and you can find thousands of animals in it, in that one drop of water. Or they can find places in California where they can uncover fossils that have been preserved by the millions. So they've got an adequate area to uncover, to look at, to see what the rocks can tell us. And yet out of all the millions of these fossils that they've looked at and examined trying to prove evolution, they're looking at it from a slanted view, they want to find it. They have never been able to find any of the missing links that they're looking for. They can find a lot of species that don't exist now, but you know, we've seen some species of animals go out of existence in our own lifetime. Can you tell me some animals that used to be that they've destroyed that don't exist anymore? All right, you've heard of the passenger pigeon. They used to fly over our country in migratory swarms by the thousands and millions, and yet... Some species of cranes are gone. If the government didn't intervene, they'd be gone. The whooping crane just has 32 living specimens that we know about. Used to be a great many of them. They were killed for their food and for the feathers that they had. The pigeons were killed, destroyed. Uh, that would keep these things going. All right, of course, we've, we, uh, if it were not for the intervention of man, we'd have other species that would be gone. Uh, you ever hear about the dodo bird? It's extinct. Uh, we've got things that in our own lifetime have ceased to exist that we don't have anymore. And so the fact that things don't any longer exist is no proof that there's any evolution involved. It simply shows that they did not continue to live. In fact, you can go over to the University of Chicago and you can see dinosaur bones, and I believe that's what they are. I believe those are big animals that used to live that don't live anymore, that they have been destroyed by the forces of nature and by virtue of the fact that they needed so much more to roam in, or maybe the atmosphere is different than it used to be. Because uh, in my mind at least, the earth is gradually coming to its running down point, just like a clock. That is, God set it in order, and I don't know how he put it into being, but it's an evident fact that it doesn't exist in every case like it did before. Uh, you want my opinion? I think they did. <laughs> I don't know really. Uh, go back to this point now, Brother Logan, that uh, we cannot prove that the earth has just been in existence 6,000 years. Uh, I know this, that in the uh, creation account, that God said that man was created last, after the animals were created. And of course the dinosaur is an animal, so he the dinosaur began to be before man was. Uh, you get into an area here that we might discuss briefly. After we get done, I want to establish a basic points, and then I'll talk some about uh, some of the difficulties with the creation account, because you do have some. But I'd just answer you by saying that as far as I'm able to understand that they existed before man uh, did, and if it won't throw you too far, I believe that they could have become extinct before man ever was created. Now, that'll give you something to think about, and we'll actually talk about that in just a minute. But uh, let's think about these from one more viewpoint. I was reading this book here that I had, that Betty had given me. I just happened to come across something that uh, I was aware of from other viewpoints. I've been taught from other sources. And over in the Pacific Ocean, they've uncovered a fish. Uh, that is nothing like any other fish that lives now. They had already dug up fossils of it, and they'd been putting out the fact that here was one of these extinct species that had for millions of years gone by the wayside. Now, you know, uh, based in this idea of evolution, there's this basic thought that evolution is actually nothing more or less than the survival of the fittest. In other words, if a creature is adaptable enough, it's going to be able to survive. 
And the reason that changes take place is because the environment requires it. Uh, that is because uh, uh, animals, for example, when they leave the sea and get out on land, they've got to change their uh, air bladders to lungs to be able to breathe, you see, adapt to their environment. Well, now, the reason they had been putting out that this uh, fish that had been extinct, they thought, for millions of years had passed away was because its environment was so that it couldn't live. Well, just oh, 10 or 15 years ago, they began to sane them up by the hundreds. An animal they said was extinct because it couldn't exist in our environment, because it, had, it wasn't fit enough to survive. And it's one of the greatest arguments against the validity of using geological records to try to prove anything from the evolutionary standpoint. That is, here's one they said it uh, actually passed away, and they, they couldn't see how it could exist now because it was so low down in the evolutionary scale. But it was proven that it does exist because they've got specimens of it. See, that's a scientific fact. That's not a guess. And uh, this would do away with a lot of the force of the geological records. But after all said and done, they've never been able to find with all of what they've got anything that would approach a missing link. Let's go to the next point. Uh, there's another approach that has been used that involves a blood precipitation test. And there's a lot about this that I don't know. But basically it involves this thought. That is that you can take the blood of some animals and you can inject them into the blood of a man or a man, and this blood will not cause the man to react adversely. Now, there are some animals you can't do that with. You can turn this around, you can take some animals, and you can take the blood out of one and put it into another, and it won't react adversely. But you can't do that with every animal. And the theory is that if you take the, animal out of, or the blood out of one animal and put it into another, and the animal is able to receive that blood without it causing it to react, that means they're pretty close together in the evolutionary scale. And they can take the blood of an ape and put it in a man, and the man doesn't react, and so therefore that means that the ape and man are pretty close together, you see. And so they use what they call the blood precipitation test to try to prove that there is a close relationship uh, genetically from the evolutionary standpoint between ape and man. But you stop and think about that just a minute. You know, uh, it's true that some animals' bloods can be put in the man. A rabbit's blood can have the same effect. It won't kill him, cause him to react one way or the other. But if that's true, that is that if you put the kind of blood you put into a uh, being indicates its relationship to the being from which the blood came, just think where that puts some of us. For example, you can put the blood of my boy in me and it will kill me because it's not my type. Well, does that prove that one of us isn't human or that we don't have a close relationship? It takes the same type of blood injected into a being that's involved in order for that blood to be received by the organism. And the very fact that we can put one type of blood of a human being into another human being and cause that human being to die because we put it in there there's no indication that there's not a genetic relationship. And the simple fact is that actually the idea of descendancy isn't involved in the blood at all anyway. You see, that comes from your genes. That comes from an entirely different part of a man. Heredity is not in the blood. Heredity is in our genes. That is, it's another part of us, in our cells, that these small things that we have that determine all of our characteristics, they'll determine how soon I get bald. You see, whether I've got a long nose or a flat nose, they come from the genes. These things are characteristics that develop uh, from an entirely different part of man. The blood precipitation test has no validity because it doesn't even prove the relationship. That comes from another part. Ellie? Well, it's been proven that there have been men that changed blood types in themselves. I know a man that was in the service. <coughs> he had one type of blood that he went in, another type they didn't inject the blood, but it just developed differently. Well, I didn't know that. You're telling me something that I wasn't aware of. No reason for it, any explanation that could be given? Well, now, that's something I have to think about and consider. I just didn't know. I don't, it wouldn't, I don't see it in bearing it have here, but uh, that's an interesting fact. I know that if he had type O when he came out and you put type A in him, it'd hurt him. <laughs> because that's, that's a fact. That is, that if you put the wrong kind of blood in a person, it's not going to uh, be very good for him. But the missing link here is that that's not where we're trying to find out where people come from. That's in the genes, and that's not in the blood. All right, let's go to the next point, which involves the idea of vestigial organs. And here, all these terms, I'm sure, are terms that you're not coming into contact with every day. But that simply refers to those parts of your body that scientists have not as yet been able to find a use for. Now, you may think of some today that we don't know exactly what they're for. They'd be vestigial organs. Can any of you... Young folks think of one. Or the appendix, although I think that they're getting to the point now where they believe they can tell you a little bit about what it's for. 
the tonsils, and there's still this has become connected with various things. There are certain glands that we now see to be productive that they used to think didn't have any use. They started off when this theory first came out with 180 different organs that they thought were useless organs. Now you see what they uh, say is that these indicate that at a time there was in the past they had a use. And now with our changing environment, our attempting to adapt to it, that we're getting rid of them. You see these things, while well, they say in the next two or three million years you wouldn't have an appendix or you wouldn't have tonsils because uh, the body won't need them anymore, it doesn't use them now. Just getting rid of them generation by generation. Well, they at first had 180 different organs in the body. They felt like cl were classified that way. But now they don't have but six. Hmm. We used to think they're dominant over there. They could have used the word sign. Well, that used to be what they call sign. You mean this idea of classifying organs as useless? Uh, yes, it was uh, the, to the extent of their knowledge, they thought this was true. They didn't know the use of it, so they couldn't say they had a use. But uh, actually, we cannot definitely say, and a scientist won't tell you, that there's any part of a man that doesn't have a use. He's been found to be wrong so many times here that he'll not claim that he sees a useless structure in man. But you know, there's a, a gap here that they refuse to face, that no evolutionist is willing to recognize. And that is that out of all the structures in man, they don't ever find one that is just now being put into use. You see, what you need to find is some of these developing organisms in man. You need to find a half-developed wing, for example, in the bird. Or uh, an arm that's just half as long as it ought to be that's a natural arm. Now, I know that you'll find some freaks, that is, some abnormalities where you'll find a person who's born with this because of a mistake in his formation. But so far as the idea of a natural de development of the species, you'll not find any half-developed organs, not those that are growing to meet the demands of the environment, the only proof they've got is in the direction of that which is getting away from us, you see. The things we're discarding. Like they'll tell you there's a snake that's got uh, rudimentary legs on it. And it was because at a time, a long time ago, it used to walk on the earth. And now it doesn't because it doesn't need these legs. It crawls and you can just barely see the traces of them. Well, they can't find you anything that shows that it's growing the other way. And that's what they need to be looking for because we're developing into something. They can't trace that tree upward. Actually, there are no useless structures in man. Then they have this idea of the different forms that come. That is, they can, as we were talking a moment ago about the cattle, they can show you now white-faced cattle when a hundred years ago there weren't any. And they'll say, why, well, this new form is an indication that you've got the development of man, or the development of the creatures, that we have structures that we didn't used to have, that we've got different kinds of animals that we didn't used to have. Now, you remember that in the realm of kind, that the creation record is not against the idea of change. All of the dogs that we now know, our beagles and our terriers and our German police and our dashhounds and everything, no matter how diverse they are in form or color or any other thing, they all sprang from one stock of dogs. But at the same time, the dog is the kind. And whatever you have that will come forth, all of these animals can uh, bear children or bear uh, offspring together. All of these are of the same kind. And no matter what shape they might take or what species might be involved, they still will fall within the scriptural definition of the same kind. The same law that has been discovered that would provide for new forms also limits them. And that's Mendel's law of heredity. That is, there is a law which says that uh, in the reproduction of different things that we have out of, say, a thousand offspring, we can have so many that'll have this characteristic and so many that'll have this one, so many that'll have this one. But this law provides for both the diversity and the limitations of these forms. It'll provide for all of the developments that exist within a species. And at the same time, it demands that we recognize that they can go no farther than is limited by these genes that each form possesses. So this has been proven that we have it limited by the law that Mendel has discovered. That is, that the reproduction of these forms take place from the chromosomes and the genes and all of these are limited by the idea that they can go just so far and no further. That is, you can have fat and uh, slim and tall and short and lean and everything else kind of human beings. But when you get through, they're still human beings. Mendel's law provides for all of the variety, all the different colored hair, all the different shapes of eyes and ears and nose and bodies, everything. All that's provided for in this idea, but it's also limited by the fact that it will produce only in its own kind. Uh, any question about all this? I don't know that I'm making myself clear. Let's think very briefly about this last one. In discussing the 
field of anthropology. That's another big word. Does anybody know what it means? You know, you have uh, programs on the TV that are called anthropologies. Have you ever wondered about what they were talking about when they said this was an anthropology? It's a discussion of man is what it is. It's a study of the development of man. And when they have studied the development of man, well, they claim to tell you that man now is a lot further along than he used to be, that folks are a lot smarter than they have been in ages past. Now, that's the reason why when they find a, uh, an evidence of a bone that looks like the brain cavity was uh, 900 uh, centimeters instead of the 1600 that we're supposed to have. Well, here's a fellow just uh, from a race that was half as smart as we are now, you see. In other words, that man is developing, he's learned more, and he's able to learn more. But when it really gets down to it, when we begin to study what's involved here, it's been proven that any man that exists now, any man that we can find a complete uh, skeleton of, that his capacity to retain the brain, that is the cavity in which the brain rests, that all of them falls in a certain area of development, and that man has from the time that he's been able to be seen to be man, has always possessed within a certain limit the same relative ability to understand. That doesn't mean that all of them understand alike. You can take the Negro in Africa and the highly educated person over here, and there's a vast difference in their ability as an individual, simply because one is the product of a greater degree of specialization, because we've studied more, we've had more education, more background, more environment, but the capacity is the same. Why, these people that they feel like they've discovered of age of 10,000 years, these dawn men that they talk about, their brain cavity is just as big as yours is. There's been no development here to uh, explain their idea that man himself is better than he used to be from the standpoint of the, his capacity to think. The nature of man is just the same. If anything, it's gone down. That is, from the standpoint of our capacity, they've uncovered people who they claim are 50,000 years old, the skulls of them, and some of them are bigger than our skulls. And if that means anything, that means like that we are descending in the evolutionary scale, you see, instead of getting better, that we're going down. Of course, the truth of the matter is the Bible talks about the fact that even during the days of, uh, of old, there were giants in those days. There were men who were of better development physically than we are. And it also tells you, by the way, that that race of giants passed away. They don't have them anymore. But man's nature is inherently the same, has always been seen to be so. Now that's just in a small capsule dose. Some of the things you're going to run into when you meet this question of evolution and some of the answers that you ought to be able to give them, that is that the whole mess is based upon assumption. That's the master link of evolution. That's the way they tie it all together. They assume one thing after another. When you get to the question of comparing the different parts of bodies, you can point out that there are gaps in the process and that likely that what has happened is simply because they have the same mind behind them who's developed all of it. When you get to the question of trying to recapitulate the development of evolution through the embryos of the different forms, you must face the reality that each embryo can be determined at every stage in its existence to be what kind that it is. In other words, there's no stage in the development of the human embryo that it could be mistaken for anything else. When you start looking into the rocks, they can't find the missing link, and that's what they're looking for. When they start talking to you about the blood, you can point out that that's not where our development arises, but it comes from the genes and not from the blood. When they start trying to tell you we've got organs now that we'll be casting off in the next million years, you point out that they've never been able to prove that we've got a one that we can't use. We may not know the use of it, but the use is there. The new forms that we see are limited by the law that Mendel discovered. The nature of man has been proven to be inherently the same now that it used to be. And that's the reason, or at least some of the reasons why, we don't have any need to accept what they say about evolution. You don't need to cast off your faith in the Bible because it is and has been and always will stand as that which man can put his faith in without successful contradiction upon the part of other men. Evolution is a theory. It's not a fact. It's not even new. If you want to believe that instead of believe the Bible, it'll take more faith and less proof for you to believe evolution than it would be to accept faith in the Word of God. Do you have a question? Johnny. I got one on that uh, geological rocks or whatever it is. Anyway, you said that... Uh, the animals existed before man did, or man, they weren't existing? Or the animals existed before man. They weren't existing man. Well, some of them do. Well, uh, but you see, the, the Bible teaches that God made the plants first, and then he made the animals, and then he made man. 
And so it's natural for us to find in our fossil record that such would be true. Now this gets us back to another point. All right, Tommy. Not necessarily, and I want to talk about this. Now, uh, this is, uh, is a possible explanation of what is taught in Genesis. It's one that I do not believe. Uh, there is another idea that to me is just as possible, as is the one that uh, Thomas suggested, that is that these days of creation, when he said the evening and the morning were the first day, that these could be more than 24-hour days. I believe they were 24-hour days. But it's very possible that all these days weren't in the same seven-day period. That is that God, the first day, divided light from darkness. And for a period of time, this was as far as creation went. Then there was another day when God created the heavens and the earth. It is the firmament he separated, the waters from the waters. And there was another period of time when he let the earth stand in this state, during which time, of course, we might find that various developments were taking place. Then there was another day when God brought, first of all, the plants into existence and let them stay for a while. Then there might have been another day. Now, there's nothing in the Word of God to deny that thought. Now, you may not believe it, but I'm saying that you're not required to accept the idea that these seven days of creation occurred, one right after the other, consecutively, in one week as we count weeks. Now, uh, as I say, this is something that has been recently given more body by the further study of the Hebrew language, where when God says the evening and the morning were the first day, actually the word the there is not a part of the text. And what he's literally saying is the evening and the morning were a first day. The evening and the morning were a second day, were a third day. And then after six such days of creation, God called a halt to it and said, I'm going to rest. Now this is a possible explanation that would allow for the time during which these animals were put into the, uh, existence on the earth, which they were allowed to develop and to grow, and in the case of some of them, to finally pass away, as the dinosaurs did. And it could have been true that they passed away before man came on the scene. Now, that's not incompatible with the Scriptures. You may not believe it. You may not want to believe it. But I'm saying that the Bible doesn't demand you believe anything else. There's a lot that we have accepted as true that the Bible does not say. And I just ask you now, as you consider this idea of evolution, and we're going to close, I didn't want to keep you but an hour, that you think seriously on what the Bible actually demands that you believe. I say again, there's no contradiction between what you can prove to be so from the Scriptures and what you can prove to be so from science. The conflict comes when we start guessing about what the Bible says and about what men believe. That's where the difficulty in fitting together what we think ought to be and what God says is. I appreciate your attention. I hope that this has done some good. Please. And you. Let me uh, ask one question. If it's the answer to place here, about, uh, just, just, you can just say so. Uh, My personal experience. Uh, when I, I didn't run into this as much when I went to high school, or maybe I didn't recognize it. Uh, I just about swallowed everything they told me. Of course, my daddy kept on me and tried to make me believe what's right. Uh, but I just never did worry one way or the other about this idea. I just thought, well, uh, maybe this has some basis to it in fact, and I just believe parts of this and I believe parts of the other. But of course, when I got older and began to study the Bible, I could see the discrepancy between what the Bible taught and what is taught now in the schools. So when I got to college and I taught, took a course in biology, and let me say this about this idea of evolution. You think that this is just being taught in your science class? It's being taught in every field. It's taught in anthropology. You've got a lot of courses you study that come in this general field of the study of man. When you start going to the field of psychology, it's all evolution. They're trying to teach you that man is nothing more than the product of his environment. That what we have here, when you, when you have hysterical fits or something like this, that's just because it's your, your environment, something you can't cope with. And they go back and explain it in evolution. Everything you've got nowadays is based upon the idea that man evolved. But when I went into my biology class in college, as I explained earlier in the class, the professor and I didn't agree. He was a theistic evolutionist. And the very first day, he found out what I was. And of course, he told me that only, in other words, by inference, that it, a fool that had no sense would believe what I believed. And throughout the rest of the course, he wouldn't have much to do with me. Whenever I'd raise my hand, he'd look the other way because he didn't want me to ask a question in class. That's what I was about. Well, now, you can cope with this. In other words, it's not, uh, uh, if you just do your job, 
I just determined when I found out what he was doing that every time I heard him teach something that I thought ought not to, at that time even I was older than the students in the class were and I felt like it was my duty whenever I could to point out what he was doing that he couldn't prove. And so I'd always try to interject a question that cast doubt on the things that he was teaching. But along with all of that, I just decided that I would master the course. I would learn what he wanted me to. And on the test that I got, I gave two answers to every question that involved evolution. I would study and give him the answer he wanted, and then I'd give him the right answer. And when the course was over, I made a good grade on the course because he knew that I knew what he wanted me to know. I didn't believe it, but I knew it. And I believe that if you do what you should do in your classes with your teachers and not be uh, insubordinate to them, accept their rule as far as you can, and learn what they want you to learn and still study deeply enough to learn what you ought to know, I don't believe you'll have any trouble. Now, you may have a little bit of difficulty in, in uh, overcoming the fact that they think you're kind of odd, but after all, you know, Christians are peculiar people to start with, and you ought to be proud that you're odd, that you're not like the rest of the folks. And so I just say that that's what you ought to do, that whenever it comes time for you to have to face that situation, that you say, well, I'm going to learn what's right, and I'll not let that fellow turn my head by these guesses that he's making, and I'll show him what I believe he wants me to learn, and I'll also try my best to show him what the Bible teaches, because that's really what you're here on earth for, is to show people what the Bible has to say. <coughs> well, we'll give you about 25 minutes before I start again.